You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit with Dr. Michael Rogers, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. We've been studying Genesis together, and I'd ask you to turn in your Bible there to Genesis chapter 6. Here's my plan, as we've been with this now for a number of months, I want to spend three Sundays, including today, on the basic account that regards Noah, which covers chapters 6 through 9. Then we have a chapter primarily of genealogies, and we'll look one time in chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel, and then break off with these studies, having come right up to the life of Abraham, which we'll come back to, I would like to hope, at another time. So let's give consideration to something that I would assume we think we know pretty well from Sunday school days, Noah and all that occurred to him. But there is much here that is not perhaps the exact things that you have in mind when you think about Noah. Today I'm going to begin reading at verse 5 of chapter 6. We said a little bit about the very first part of 6 last time. So listen to God's Word. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. And the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, birds of the air. For I'm grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. And God saw how how corrupt the earth became, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So, make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, 
to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. This is God's holy word. There are a few images in the Bible, I would suppose, that are more immediately familiar than that of Noah's ark. I would guess that more than half of the church nurseries in all of the United States have some image of Noah and animals and an ark painted or depicted in some form there for the children. We're all knowledgeable of what this is like, elephants and kangaroos and rabbits marching up a ramp into a a huge, awkward-looking boat. The toy industry has thrived on Noah and his ark for a very long time. You can find antique replicas carved from wood by folk artists and craftsmen with all the different animals and, of course, elderly Mr. and Mrs. Noah along with them. And we all know these images. We all know what this story is basically about. But I would say to you that the four chapters of Genesis 6 to 9 that are devoted to the account of Noah and God's interaction with him is something far more than just a colorful tale for children. In fact, the part we have read really has rather terrible dimensions as it is the wrath of God that is being announced here. The account of the ark and the catastrophic flood that came has not only 40 days of rain, but the text will later describe how somehow vast floodwaters even from within the earth came up and and created a catastrophic deluge is not a child's play story at all. And however difficult it may be for some in their rational minds to read of this and, and say, well, it just doesn't seem possible that something like that really happened. The Word of God certainly presents it as pure history. There isn't any question of the way it's presented. It focuses on a terrible and yet completely just judgment of God, but yet it also features His tender mercy and way of His salvation for those who would trust in Him. I wonder if you realize just how extensive the stories, oral records, written legends of some kind of a disastrous flood are in the cultural history of many, many nations of the world. I've read those that have researched this thing, and it's, it's really fantastic. All the way from Native American Sioux Indians to pre-Columbian Mayans, Babylonians, Norwegians, Celtic, Druids. You can go far and wide in China, in many places, and you find stories embedded in the early cultural history that there once was a disastrous flood. Well, people don't know exactly what to do about that. They say, well, it's just interesting that people, you know, make up similar stories. But we wonder if it isn't more probable to believe that all of these different legends, and they do vary a lot in terms of people involved and 
and exactly what happens. But might they trace their origin back to a real event which we are being told about here in Genesis chapters 6 to 9. There's also a lot of science involved when we've come to discuss this whole thing. The the geology and anthropology and hydrology of, of the flood itself and how it affected the earth makes quite an interesting study and experts debate over that. There's also a navigational study if you are one interested in in boats, and I think it's probably right to call the ark a boat, not a ship. Those of you who are Navy people here, straighten me out if I'm wrong. But how did this 450-foot-long, 70-foot-wide boat come to be built over a period of many years by a relatively small number of people and then be able to preserve those who survived? because of it. You may know, many of you, that there are various reports, and it's sort of fascinating that we cannot go and get to the root of these, reports that on Mount Ararat in Turkey there have been found and even photographed from the air a structure of some type that is visible at times within a glacier up there in a country that does not allow access to outsiders to come and study it, artifacts of some large wooden structure where no such structure would ever be built and now encased in a glacier not always visible. Many tantalizing side avenues poke their heads up when we begin to talk about this story and this account of the Word of God. Today, I'm not going to talk about the ark itself or the flood itself in any specific terms. We should get into that, hopefully, next time as we see the actual obedience of Noah. I'm really looking mostly at verses 5 through 8 of chapter 6 today to see the groundwork here of God's summary judgment pronounced on human sin that was so extensive that the Lord, And you're amazed to read this as you progress along in Genesis. All of a sudden, the Lord seems to be ready to wipe out that which he made for his glory. And I'll have to put those words all of a sudden in quotes because you'll see it's not so sudden after all. The Lord's dealing with Noah and the people of that time signaled the end of the first world social order. And then it's total renewal again. Really, it's a recreation story. And yet in the midst of God bringing watery, devastating wrath, this Scripture tells also of long-suffering, divine mercy, and God's plan to save His own. The key verse, I think, is Genesis 6-8 that reads, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, or found favor as our account had it read. It's not my intent to be clever in twisting or changing Scripture today when I say that what is portrayed here, I hope you will be able to see, actually may be stated slightly differently. That grace found Noah. And that is the great truth that's put before us in Genesis 6 this morning. Our first 
point to look at here presents to us a disastrous downward spiral of human sin. That mainly in verse 5. We read, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That is one of the Bible's most striking statements on the total effect of long-term rebellion against God and the human condition that resulted. I was correcting a Bible exam for two different candidates coming to our presbytery. One is Stephen Light. The other was another man coming for ordination in our presbytery. They have to pass very lengthy and detailed Bible exams. And one of the questions was, give some biblical authentication, give some texts for the doctrine of original sin and the depravity of man. And both of them gave Genesis 6-5, a prime text, a text that, that is rather terrible sounding. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart, only evil all the time. And I want to tell you, as one who believes God's Word, I find myself reading that, and there's a little voice in my head that says, is it really that bad? Are we really that bad? You need to compare this to what was read just a few chapters earlier in chapter 1 when the Lord created the earth and populated it and put man as his crowning creation, bearing his image. And you remember what it said then in terms of a summary statement. It is good. It is good. It is very good. You have to take that. It is very good and put it alongside now only evil all the time. How did we get from a summary in chapter 1 to this summary in chapter 6? What a stunning change has occurred. Let me remind you that last time I sought to give you a broad brush picture of descendants of Cain at the end of chapter 4 and descendants of Seth in chapter 5 who were predominantly, apparently, people of faith who walked with God. But then chapter 6 opens up, and if we're correct in understanding the phrase the sons of God in verse 2 as meaning these same people of faith, which the context would heavily seem to imply that's who's being spoken about, these same people who walked with God suddenly began to look about their culture and see that without regard for boundaries of faith, they wanted to marry women who were not believers. And you have in just a short compass there in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 6 the story of a decline coming from compromise. In those days, just as today, I suppose people didn't think it mattered all that much. If I love this person, what does it matter that she has a household idol that she worships while I look to the one true God? Well, it matters. Over the long haul, it matters. There are certainly exceptions where mixed marriages, mixed spiritually, that is, can succeed. And there are stories of of one coming to faith in Christ who was not originally after a marriage. Those are great stories, and we rejoice to hear them. But God takes seriously and, and emphasizes throughout the Scripture, be careful of your most intimate partnerships. It will either enhance your life and bring you fellowship and 
and be a solid arm in arm walking with the Lord, or it could be something that would ruin you. And that apparently is what began to happen as the very beginning there of chapter 6. Now, I think one of the the issues I want to address is the idea we have, how abruptly 6-5 seems to kind of slap us in the face, that the Lord saw this, and as I said a moment ago, we want to say, how did it get this way so quickly? Well, it's not so quickly. That's what we tend not to understand. It's not an abrupt development at all. Quite interestingly, if we went back for a moment into chapter 5 and looked at these different people of faith, the generations of men of faith who walked with the Lord and lived these long lives of, of blessing, you see Methuselah. Each person's birth is given and how it overlapped with the one before him. You can sit down, or you who are mathematically inclined can draw a chart of this because you can draw Adam and then Seth and then each one going down because it tells you that For example, Seth was born in this particular year of Adam's life. And you can draw these lines, you know, going out, each line going out a little farther. One of the really interesting things is the meaning of the name of the longest-lived man in chapter 5, Methuselah. He lived 969 years. Methuselah's name meant something like this. When he is gone it will come. Methuselah was a prophet on the day he was born. As a baby and as a young man and as an older man, he was a prophet by the name that he carried because the Lord had predicted in his name, when this man is gone, something is going to befall. Now, quite remarkably, James Boyce does a good job with this in his commentary on the text, adding this up and showing you the wonderful correlation of the Scripture that the life of Methuselah, if you compile all the years, would have extended to 1,656 years after the appearance of Adam in the man's first creation. 1,656 years. There's nothing special about that number except in Noah's chronology... That is the year when the flood came. When he is gone, it comes. God gave a 969-year warning in the lifetime and the name of the man Methuselah that something was wrong and something would have to change. And certainly it wasn't only that name. It was preaching that was going on by men of faith, Noah himself, we learn later, was a preacher of God's righteousness, proclaiming the name of God. But down through not just a few years or a few decades, but all these centuries, 16 and a half centuries, is the period of time that passes from Adam's appearance until the flood. Now, when you think of it that way, you understand God is not being abrupt or sudden or capricious or short-tempered. Not at all. I use as an illustration here. You could think about the Mississippi River. Our family spent a brief time in the state of Minnesota many years ago. And in the time we lived there, we once made a a brief visit, just a day visit, to Lake Itasca. 
Some of you may have been to Lake Itasca. You say, what's big about Lake Itasca? Way up in northern Minnesota. Lake Itasca is the headwater of the Mississippi River. It's in the far north of, you don't even think about the Mississippi being in the state of Minnesota, do you? But that's where it originates. And when it leaves Lake Itasca, it's just a little stream. They have a place there where tourists can wade across it, take your shoes off and and wade across the Mississippi River and tell your folks you crossed the Mississippi in a few steps. And I can tell you that it's a beautiful place at Lake Itasca. The water's clear. The trees are green. It's, it's unspoiled. And if someone was to say to me, you're thirsty, and the only water around would be for you to take a cup and dip some of that stream coming out of Lake Itasca and take a drink, Will you do it? I would say, sure. It looks great. There's no chemical plant there pouring pollution out or anything like that. But if I followed Lake Itasca's waters as they flow downward and many, many streams, of course, and other rivers come into them and it flows its way southward until it reaches the Mississippi Delta at New Orleans. And someone said to me, are you thirsty? Dip your cup in the waters of the Mississippi at the Delta and have a drink, (laughs) I would say, thank you very much. I'll wait to see what else is available. Because by the time, of course, the Mississippi has made that hundreds of miles of journey and, and all of the chemicals and silt and agricultural runoff and sewage and everything else has mixed in that water, you don't want to drink it. That's what has happened to humanity in 1,656 years. And so, for one thing here, we can vindicate the, the honor and the reputation of God that His determination in Genesis 6 is no sudden determination. It's a determination actually built on long, long waiting for mankind to turn to Him and watching the situation degrade and degrade until it got much worse. From Genesis 6, 5 onward, we recognize a biblical doctrine that is often called total depravity. Now, that's a theological term, and it's one that offends many people because they say, oh, you, you crazy Calvinists, you Presbyterians, you're so pessimistic about humanity. Total depravity? Why, that sounds like everybody's a monster. Everybody's just as terrible as they could be. Everybody's as debauched as a human being could ever be. We're not saying that. What we are saying is that there's no five-ounce cup of Mississippi Delta water that is not tainted. And just so, there is no part of any human being that is not at least tainted with unbelief and deceit and rebellion against God. We're told that here. It's interesting, the terminology that God's Word chooses in verse 5. It tells us that our sin is an intensive thing. It doesn't just start. You know, we talk about sins, plural. And by that we mean acts or deeds that people do. You know, you work for a bank and you embezzle money, that's a sin. You hold up the bank, that's a sin. But working in the bank day in and day out and handling the bank's money and thinking, oh, oh, if I could only you know, carry this bundle of $100 bills home with me is a sin. 
Sin is intensive. It works right into the inner part of us. And so it says here, every inclination of the thought of the heart is where sin starts. And that's what Jesus came to say, didn't he? To people who had externalized sin and said, well, it's this behavior or that behavior. doesn't really matter how you... No, Jesus said, your, your heart has lusted after that woman. And it's the same as if you committed adultery with her. Jeremiah chapter 17 says, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked beyond cure. Who can comprehend it? Our own hearts desire all kinds of wrong things all the time. And then we're saying when we talk about total depravity, not only that it's inward or intensive, but it's extensive. It applies to everybody in all situations. Doesn't the Bible argue that in Romans chapter 3? As Paul brings together numerous Old Testament passages and he argues that there is none righteous, not even one. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away and become worthless. And he makes his conclusion before telling us the wonder of salvation and says, every mouth will be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. There's nobody who's going to escape. There's nobody in this room today or in this pulpit who's free from the intensive and extensive effects of human sin. Jesus affirmed it. He said, you are like good trees that bear bad fruit. He called some people children of your father, the devil. He said, you're like salt that isn't any good anymore. It doesn't have its savor. And in the third chapter of Genesis, he said that apart from faith that embraces what he would do at the cross, you are condemned already. God's diagnosis sounds awful here, only evil all the time, but I would ask you to believe it is not an exaggeration. It's like the ringing of a great bell. You know, we don't have, we don't live in little villages anymore where you can ring a bell and everybody kind of hears it. But you think of some of the great bells in the towers of cities like London that might toll out the death of a great leader like Churchill. That's what this verse is almost like, the tolling of a bell, telling of the death of someone. Whose death? Who is it tolling for? Well, it was tolling for everybody in that time, and it's tolling for us. And if our theology of Scripture does not begin with God's dark, unpleasant, and yet accurate analysis of the totality of human sin, that it is intensive and extensive, then we have a defective theology all the rest of the way. If we don't have that, people talk about the points of Calvinism. You may know the first is total depravity. And they'll say, oh, well, I'm a three-point Calvinist, or I'm a you know, two-and-a-half-point. Well, listen, if you're not a first-point Calvinist, you don't understand the Bible because that's where most people go wrong. They think, oh, well, we're just a little sick. We've got a little problem. No, the Scripture says you have a deadly problem. And it requires a supernatural solution. Martin Luther commented, without the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, man can do nothing but sin. And so he goes on blindly from one sin to the next. Well, that's pretty dark. 
I admit. Let's go on. Secondly, I want to show you the Lord's mind revealed here in two ways that both tell us that God's wrath has a breaking point. Verse 3 tells it, My spirit will not always contend with man. God sees it almost as if His spirit is in a contest calling humanity to repentance and humanity's ignoring Him. Then in verse 6 in particular, it says in our translation, the Lord was grieved and said, I will wipe mankind I have made from the earth, for I am grieved I have made him. God's wrath has a breaking point. It's interesting that the NIV text and others, modern translations, say the Lord was grieved. The older translations tend to say something that may confuse people. It says God repented that He had made man. Now, every time we get into this sort of language, we call it anthropomorphic language, language that makes God sound like He's acting as a man, we have to explain God doesn't change His mind. Numbers 23 says God is not a man or a son of man, that He should repent. To say that is a figure of speech. It's explaining something about God in our human eyes that we don't know how else to explain. But it is actually explainable. The Lord has held back consequences of His judgment for so long that when finally, after He's held it back and held it back and held it back, He lets it go, people say, whoa, God has changed His mind. No, God never changes His mind. He always had that wrathful reaction to sin. But he held it back for so long that you took it for granted that he would never bring it. John 16, verse 8 says, The Spirit of God is resident in human beings to convict us of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Well, how long does it take for the Holy Spirit to convict someone? How many times does the Lord have to post a big sign that you drive by in your daily life and say, Don't go any further down this road. A bridge is washed out. You go, oh, those signs don't mean anything. They just put them up. Keep on driving. Another sign. Stop. The bridge is out. Oh, don't worry about that sign. Just keep going. And one day you drive off the washed out bridge and you say, why didn't somebody tell me? Well, God's Word has been telling you and telling you and telling you. And we get into difficulties in our lives and disastrous circumstances in our marriages and our relationships and our behaviors, and we say, why did this happen to me? What is God doing? Wait a minute. How many signs did you drive by before this happened to you? Genesis 6 makes it clear that the door of repentance was open to human beings for 16 centuries. But consciences were being hardened and calloused in a thousand ways. People can't say God is short-tempered. God has decided suddenly to rise up and do something. He never told us what happened. You cannot say that here. In the concept of God and the revelation of God that gathers around this great flood. Notice something in verse 3. I didn't read this text, but we read it last week. When the Lord said, My spirit will not always contend with man forever. He is mortal and his days will now be a hundred and 20 years. It is thought there, the main understanding of that is that God 
was now limiting. We've just read these tremendous lifespans in chapter 5, these men of faith who lived for 600, 700, 900 years in the blessing of God. It seems the Lord is saying life itself is now going to narrow down. And it doesn't say every one of us, of course, is going to live 120 years, but many would take that to be the upper limit. And think about that. Do you know anybody? Is there anybody in the Guinness Book of Records who's been around? There might be a 124-year-old in the world somewhere. There probably is, but there aren't very many. The upper limit that God has set here seems to be true to our experience today. What we ought to see in Genesis 6 is not God being suddenly unreasonable, but we ought to be amazed that the Lord in His patience allowed this sentence of sin to be stored up and stored up for so many centuries. Our God is a God of life. He's a God of blessing. He desires to bless, not curse. But beware of the day when His wrath that is entirely just lets go. Deuteronomy 32 says this, Speaking for the Lord himself prophetically, I put to death, I bring to life, I have wounded, I will heal. No one can deliver out of my hand, says the Lord. As surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. The God of life. The God of grace is not a God to be trifled with. The wage of sin is eternal death. And yet God's withholding, God's patience, God's waiting for men is such that those who would come to die eternally, a spiritual death, really have to be considered to be suicides. God didn't kill them. They chose the death under his wrath. Well, finally, on a text that may seem dark to you today, let me turn to the fact that it's not all dark. In the third place today, I want you to see that God's grace takes precedence even in dark circumstance. The question we have to ponder at at this chapter is, why did anyone survive since God is just Sin was universal. Everyone was a sinner. Why did anyone survive? What made Noah stand out? Did God kind of survey the earth with his all-knowing mind and say, ah, oh, I'm so glad that at least there's one person who has been so good and has behaved so well that he's deserving of my rescue. His name is Noah. I'll at least be able to save him. Is that what this is about? I'm actually disappointed at modern translations, not only the NIV that I read, but the ESV and other modern translations that say in verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I would contend that the word grace is the best translation and should be used there. And the older translations say, Noah found grace. And then verse 9 goes on to describe more about Noah and says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. He walked with God. Let me make an important distinction here. 
Verse 9 definitely follows verse 8. Here's what I mean. Verse 9 is a consequence of verse 8. Yes, verse 9 says Noah had a righteous and godly life. Why did he have a righteous and godly life? Because the grace of God had taken hold of him. Something that was not of his earning or not of his character or of his his natural way of behaving, grace came to Noah and gave him this unique life. Just as Ephesians 2.8 tells us in the New Testament, by grace, the unmerited favor of God, you are saved through faith. And this faith even is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. I prefer, ladies and gentlemen, to turn the wording around. And I don't believe I'm doing violence to Scripture. I think I am bringing out the correct sense of Genesis 6-8 if I would emphasize to you today that grace found Noah. God's sovereign electing grace poured out by the Holy Spirit to this man awakened him, brought his heart alive, had him look to his God and live this life of singular righteousness. Otherwise, Noah was a lost wretch like everybody else. It was the grace of God, not the grace of Noah, that preserved one man and his family from a watery grave. God set his designs on this man. Yes, Noah had faith, and we're going to get into his faith a little more next week. Man, what he undertook in faith was amazing. But he had that faith because of grace meeting him in his life and awakening him to God. Now, folks, this isn't just long ago and faraway stuff. We live in perilous times today. Here in our ease, in this beautiful church building, in this delightful place of Lancaster where we live, in this early 21st century, all seems to be pretty good compared to those times. But let me tell you, there is a massive turning away from the things of God in our time in 2009 that is identical in its intensity and its extensiveness to what was seen in those days. Our society has built alternative temples at which to worship. Oh, they're not necessarily buildings, although they have buildings called banks as our society has gone off to worship at the altar of materialism, the altar of security, of personal peace and affluency. And here we are at a time in this society when, guess what? Our alternative idol of worship is quaking and trembling and seems about to fall off its pedestal. And the ground is shaking underneath our feet as we go to worship the idol of of material security. Now, you would think in a circumstance like that, if we were different from these people of Genesis 6, we would be warned, we would awaken, we would say, oh, we've worshipped the wrong God. Let us run to the God who made us, the sovereign God who is over us and wants to be our Redeemer and will do for us all that is needed. Let us go to Him. Let us lift up hands in prayer to Him. And uh, there would be a massive revival in our society. Is that what we have? Or have we been so long trained 
that the answer is in man and his security and his finances that we say, give us a governmental fix and bring it fast. And God isn't even in the formula. Matthew 24, 37 had Jesus say, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the final days when the Son of Man returns. Everyday life will be underway, weddings being planned, work being carried out, millions of people oblivious of the God and Savior and Creator whom they are spurning. And the Scripture says, then Christ the Judge will appear. And no one is going to hold back the awesome hand of God's judgment on unbelief when Christ appears. But I tell you, folks, there is an ark of safety. It's already been built. God's grace holds it forth to you. Just as God led Noah to build that vessel that would take him out of the flood and preserve him alive, he, by his Son, Jesus Christ, has built an ark that is buoyant, that is tightly sealed, that will weather every storm for those who are in Him. And my call to you is turn to Christ. Be found in Him. Hear the grace of God calling you to awaken you, to put your trust in Him. And folks, you need to do it before it really begins to rain. Amen. Our Father, our situation is no different than what we see here that caused you to turn and say, time is up. The centuries are up, and my wrath must be vindicated. But as we see this dark theme today, how we thank you for the sunlight of grace breaking through the clouds. You, in Christ Jesus, made the way of escape. Father, make everyone here serious about this matter. May there be no one who goes by today as if driving 50 miles an hour past the sign that says, bridge out just ahead. None of us knows the days that we have. Father, call us to Christ. Humble us before Christ. How we praise you for a true and living Savior who is able to give us life. We pray that he would not be ignored. Amen.